a Podcast One production. The following production includes explicit language and deals with adult themes. Parental guidance is advised for those under 15 years. Hello and welcome to Episode 7 of The Trials of the Vampire. Last time, out of the blue, a prisoner confessed that he was the one who killed Shane Chartres Abbott. This man can't be named for legal reasons, so I've called him the author. The murder was a favour, a matter of principle, he claimed. Chartres Abbott was an animal who'd brutally raped a number of women. The author pointed the finger at an associate, Evangelist Gooses, as his accomplice, and a man named Warren Shea, who he said had commissioned the murder. Shea and Gooses say the author made up the whole story, but the fact they were in close contact with the self-confessed killer at the time casts a shadow of suspicion over them. Ange Gooses is a twice-convicted killer. That's what the courts say. He's serving 35 years for the murders of two crime figures, Lewis Kane and Lewis Moran, in 2004. He got the longest sentence of anyone from the gangland war, perhaps because he never gave up anybody else to the police. Yet his family knows another side to him. I recently caught up with some of Ange's family, his nieces and nephews, who have chosen to remain anonymous. What kind of guy is he? He's an, he's an all-round fun uncle. We had a very happy um, childhood with him, you know, growing up with him because, like, the ages are really close. Like, he's only nine years older than me. So he's an, all, he's an all-round good guy. He's not a bad guy. He's a good guy. He's lots of fun. He fits well with the older generation. He can come down and be on the level of the young kids as well. People love him. He's charismatic. Charismatic. He walks in, he lights up the room. He makes old people laugh, he makes young people laugh. He's helpful, he's playful. Everybody loved him, everyone. A bit of a joker, a bit jovial, you know, big personality. He's very intelligent, he's really smart. He's a sportsman, he's athletic, he was a champion in his field. A lot of people gave him that respect and he liked it. He liked to always be in the, in the limelight. He liked to be centre of attention. The women loved him. Yeah. Good looking guy. Have you seen him? Yeah, well, I haven't Beautiful. met him, but other pictures. Beautiful, six foot, great body, good hair. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> He's you know, well like spoken. A, a Greek boy from, you know, the suburb, like the northern from suburbs, North, from, North. from Northcote, from Fairfield. You know, a bit of a club guy, loved to go to the clubs. Like when I was younger, I was like 18, and I'd see him at the clubs at about three or four in the morning. Oh, wow, there's an A lot of the fun. <laughs> a lot of the times we could get in the clubs. We got in the clubs because we drop his name. Stuff like that. Like, just a lot of fun. A jury believed that this fun-loving, charismatic gentleman pursued Lewis Moran around a suburban bar called the Brunswick Club and then shot him to death as Moran cowered in a corner. His co-accused later gave him up to the police. Five weeks after Moran's murder, Gusis was travelling by car through the inner city with an associate and a minor thug named Lewis Kane. Somehow, Kane ended up with a bullet in the head and his body was dumped in a laneway. Gooses initially confessed to shooting Kane, but claimed self-defence. Kane had tried to shoot him, but the gun jammed. The other man in the car, who can't be named for legal reasons, backed this version and the jury convicted Gooses. Later, Ange changed his story. He accused his friend of being Kane's killer, but it was all too late. I asked the family, what kind of gap has Ange Gooses' incarceration left? Heartbreaking. We're heartbroken yeah. with what's happened to him and our family and our grandma and everything like that. It's really heartbreaking to see what's happened to our family because this is not the road that he was supposed to take. Like, we would never in a million years expect to be speaking with you like this with all due respect or going to a murder trial. 
and having all this shit in it. Not one, but a few murder trials. Three murder trials. Not guilty. I've got very close friends that I speak to about it sometimes, and it's surreal for me to say, oh, you know, we've got to meet up with a lawyer, we've got to meet up with a journo. What for, mate? Like, what for? But we're lucky, like, we're a family and we've stuck together. Yeah. And if that's we didn't why have a strong family, we wouldn't have been be able to get through this. No. Yeah, it's left a massive burden on everybody, especially when it first came through. Mm. I remember the feelings of embarrassment, of what others going to think about our family. It's going to, you know, all these things, especially for my mum and the girl's mum and my grandmother. Mm. My, my, my grandmother, you know, the, the most, she didn't deserve any of this, to have to go through all of this. Of all the betrayals, it's the author's treachery towards Ange in the Chartres Abbott case that burns most brightly for the family. And you would hear about this person called What's-His-Face, yeah. and, and then he stitches us like that. Who the fuck are you, mate? Like, who are you? You're a nobody. Yeah. Who is this guy? Better keep him away from you because you'd tear him apart. No, I probably, <laughs> I probably wouldn't, but... Um, and the thing that annoys me the most is this guy's protected by the police. When I started researching this story four years ago, I received a letter from a colleague that was written by a former associate of the author, offering a free character assessment. The letter said, you're bound to get nothing but negative feedback about him from anyone who's ever known him. He's a one-off in the professional criminal ranks. I don't doubt there have been others with identical traits, but this would have hastened their deaths at the hands of those they'd betrayed. Yet he, however, has a puzzling longevity and just keeps on keeping on, defying the odds and leaving an ever-growing pile of betrayals and bodies behind him. At the rate he's going, when his time eventually does come, he'll probably die peacefully in his sleep at a ripe old age. The correspondent went on to say his instinct for self-preservation was legendary. His greatest skill was in choosing his partners in crime for their high degree of naivety, appealing to their sense of mateship and the unwritten code to get them to accept all the blame. It often ends up with the novice having the book thrown at him while his trusted mentor gets off with a rap over the knuckles. I'm sure Ange Gooses and Warren Shea could relate to this after the author gave them up for the murder of Shane Chartres Abbott. The deal he struck with police was breathtaking. Already behind bars for a long time, the author would serve no more time for the killing of Shane. This was a free hit, but he had to give them more. They wanted the names of corrupt police. On the day of the murder of Chartres Abbott, I presented myself to the Paran police station in order to have an outstanding warrant executed upon myself. The person who was to execute this warrant was to be Detective Peter Lawler, otherwise nicknamed as Stash. This meeting at Paran Police Station was part of a plan to keep the author off the police radar for the killing, to create an alibi. He'd earlier failed to appear in court for a traffic matter, so he presented himself to the police to answer a warrant. It would be highly unlikely for an individual to kill someone that day and then present himself to a police station the very same day. In other words, it was an alibi which could be corroborated by Peter Lawler. The murder plot was conceived at an inner city hotel. According to the author, another copper just out of the force named David Waters organised this meeting between one week and one day before Shane's murder. The author had been given Shane's address by Warren Shea, but it turned out to be wrong. So he turned to Waters to obtain the right address, and he claims Peter Lawler obliged in the beer garden of the hotel. When I was given the address, it was on a handwritten note, which I wrote out again and handed his note back. I believe there was a hidden agenda there, but I don't know what was in it for Peter Lawler. Any information he gave us was paid for. He got paid 1,500 bucks for the warrant. I paid him that at the police station. I said, have a drink, and handed him the cash in a lucky band. 
The author said others were on hand that afternoon at the hotel, including an older inspector of police, 50 to 55 years of age, and a big, thick-set young guy, apparently a storeman in the police force. In later statements, the cast of police characters in his story grew as he endeavoured to make good on his promise that he would deliver a truckload of corrupt police. And they are all apparently here in one place, this hotel. It seemed to be a heaven-sent opportunity for the leadership of Victoria Police. The author named Lawler first, but he and the others named were just collateral damage. His real target was David Waters, and in that regard, he and Vic Pohl had much in common. The top brass had been after Docket Waters for years. I uh, was out with some friends. There was another uh, male friend of mine and two girls at the time that were with us. We ended up stopping to get a pizza. So in the middle of getting a pizza, an all-in brawl erupts, which was the last thing we were worrying about doing that night. And we ended up uh, with the two girls, myself and the other fellow, all got fairly, uh, you know, beaten up by about 15 people from uh, the pizza parlour there. And they're armed with all sorts of clubs and bats and all sorts of paraphernalia. And the girls got put in hospital and the friend that was with, he got his head split open and I got injured. And anyway, in the end, I... Uh, when the friend had his head split open, he was knocked out cold like a fountain coming out the top of his head with the blood. Um, and the bloke was still swinging a bar at him. I honestly believe that they were going to kill him because if they didn't stop, he was just out cold, getting kicked like a rubber doll on the ground and getting beaten still. Um, and I uh, had a fishing knife that was in the car because it was a panel van, had fishing gear in there. And I got in between them and as a result, the fellow wielding the bar was um, stabbed under the arm and he, uh, and that stopped the fight then and there. And what happened ultimately to that bloke who got stabbed? Uh, uh, he lived. Back in those days, there was a um, the homicide rule was a year and a day after the injury and he lived past that time and uh, I was never charged with murder or attempted murder. I was charged with, you know, wounding with intent to do GBH, I think it was, but in those days you, you had to reapply for bail and the judge at the time said there was no more bail, so I had to spend two nights riding the prison van out to Pentridge Prison on remand while uh, the, the trial progressed. Those two nights behind bars left their mark on the young constable, who believed he'd acted only in defence of his mate and himself. The police force was quite happy to leave me sitting out at Pentridge and I was riding on the prison van with the likes of East, Edward Eastwood, the kidnapper, and he was up for killing uh, a bloke in Jika Jika at the time. I was a 23-year-old constable, scrawny little kid, left a buddy, you know, fend for himself. So my attitude, you know, did change a lot after that. But I still went back and, you know, and I wanted to still, you know, be in the, in the cops. Became a detective and continued on from there. Over Waters' career, many bosses felt he was too close to the villains. I always remember, you know, a couple of wise old coppers said, you know, to be a good policeman, you've got to be able to roll around in the gutter with the drunks and be able to stand up and shake the hand of a doctor. You know, you've got to meet people at their level. Don't expect people to come to you. Four Victorian detectives are facing trial over allegations they robbed a drug dealer of $100,000 worth of cannabis at St Kilda Marina. In 1999, Waters was in trouble again, accused of ripping off a drug dealer in cahoots with three other Victorian policemen. 
but once again, he and the co-accused were acquitted. After deliberating for less than two days, the jury found all four men not guilty on all counts. Outside court, Mr Waters expressed his relief that the case was finally over for him and his family. Waters' days as a policeman were over. He left the force on a disability pension in 2002. He's since worked as an earth-moving contractor, but he's kept up his contacts in policing and the underworld, including the author. And fresh from beating the drugs charges, Waters stepped up to help in the murder of Chartres Abbott, if you believe the author. All right, here we are at the Palmerston Hotel in South Melbourne here, shabby old pub uh, on King's Way. Going to meet Dave Waters and Chris Costo, see what's what. Waters was having a lunchtime beer with two former police colleagues, Chris Costo and retired inspector Bob Hodgkin, whom the author said was also at the hotel when the murder of Shane was planned. I was talking to Shane's older brother, who lives in Sydney, and he said, I said, what's your perception of the case? He said that Shane was murdered with the connivance of some police. So that's the impression that's been left. It's all as a result of the media and all the rest of it. That's why around Footscray they call you Murky Waters. That's right, yeah, the Murky Waters. That's now around the local area where I live and friends and that. All because of all that shit. Mm. It's water off a duck's back now, but um, at the time it it devastated. I don't don't know know, if it is. Oh, look, you can tell. You've spoken to him before, Adam. You know what it's like. I'd still get upset about it, but, you know, you've got to go on and live your life. Yeah, you know? it's true. Yeah. I guess your critics would say, well, geez, you're, you're a lad, you're a rogue, you were charged with various things, you, you did things that other policemen wouldn't do. I'm not casting judgment. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. But, but do, you, do, you, do you think you're a victim of your own reputation in a way? Well, I think an easy target, probably for some to say, yeah, you know, and they're probably sour grapes, as you said. I got charged with a few things over the years and, and you know, I was found not guilty, so some people hold a grudge, they're dirty on it, and all the rest, and they go, oh, he's a smart-ass, let's go and... The police were certainly willing to believe that Waters was an integral part of the murder plot. After the murder, I drove the car and Ange was the front seat passenger. We stopped outside a hotel in Flemington and Ange got out with the plastic bag which contained the gun, scanner and I think the beanies. Ange then gave those items to Dave Waters. The author claims Waters handed the gun back to him within two days. This odd game of pass the parcel did raise some doubt about the story being told. Detective Senior Sergeant Idles asked me why I gave the gun to Dave Waters. Dave knew too much to begin with, and this was part of my reasoning that if I gave him the gun, it was an insurance policy to buy his silence. None of this makes much sense to me, but it seems that every turn the author picks up on bits of information he gleans from detectives and then uses this information to massage his vague statements into some coherence. Detective Senior Sergeant Idles has told me that on 6 June 2003, Dave Waters appears to have left Melbourne to travel to Western Australia early in the morning. If that's accurate, then I would say it was 5 June I met him to collect the gun. What you're about to hear is highly protected information. It's not to be discussed with anyone else other than the people inside this room. It's not to be further disseminated. This is a showstopper. On March the 1st, 2007, Deputy Commissioner Simon Overland convened a meeting of senior police who would manage the strategy around the prosecution of Lawler and Waters. This reference group included the Chief Commissioner, Christine Nixon, and the Heads of Internal Affairs, the Crime Department, and the Media Unit. This was a watershed moment for Overland, who was already tipped for the Chief Commissioner's job. Most of the author's evidence was uncorroborated as yet, but Overland had heard enough. 
He's declined to be interviewed, so an actor is playing his part. On January 31, I spoke to Christine Nixon and I said, look, this is what I think we've got and we now need to work out what we're going to do about it because this is the smoking gun the media has been looking for, royal commissions and all the rest of it. So in terms of risk to the organisation, it does not get much bigger than this. We agreed that we needed to get some task forces set up to deal with it. At the same time, Vic Pohl was dealing with another killing that had alleged police links. An informer named Terry Hodson and his wife Christine were executed at their home in May 2004. A drug squad officer named Paul Dale was a suspect, but he was ultimately cleared of any involvement. In my history in law enforcement, I am not aware of other organisations that have had to deal with this sort of issue. Uh, It's not an issue that I ever thought that I would have to deal with, where, in effect, we have two and possibly three investigations going, uh, that there has been some direct involvement between serving police officers and murders. It does not come more sensitive than this. But again, we go back to that idea about police needing to show that they can rid themselves of corruption, that they don't need to have a Royal Commission. Simon Overland, who was a Deputy Commissioner through this period, he absolutely knew that. Chip Legrand from the Australian newspaper followed this story for years. Which is why he, when he thought that he finally had a case that linked in a serving and a former detective into a gangland murder. I mean, they were popping champagne calls because he thought this was the moment, it was the, the showstopper, as he called it. That it was going to be the case that would get everyone off the Victoria Police's case in terms of demanding that there be some sort of a royal commission in terms of what gone on. And so Operation Briars was created, a task force to prove the links between Peter Lawler, David Waters and the murder of Shane Chartres Abbott. But that's not how it turned out. No police officer was ever charged over the allegations made by the author. Yet the unjustified stench of guilt hangs over them. When I began this research, I was aware Lawler and Waters wanted a coronial inquest into Shane's murder, a proceeding where they might be able to finally clear their names. I had some bad news for David Waters when I first got in touch. Hello, Dave. Yeah. It's Adam Chan. How are you going? Oh, good, buddy. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, good. And it's one more surprising thing. I've discovered there was a coroner's inquest into Shasta's Abbott's death last October. Were you aware of that? No. News for everyone, I think. They've hidden it away very carefully, I reckon. Oh, that's a fucking joke, Adam. Because Peter Layler and I said, why don't we call, ask for a coroner's inquest? We've got no mm. problems with that. And we, we, you know, said, let's do it. Yeah, it was held in October, and uh, I got this from... And uh, I went to the website to find the findings, and they're not there. You've got to apply for them. I'm assuming we ought to get them, but I think yeah. it's going to have to be a party to the case rather than a journal. I'll tell you what, it's very interesting, too, that they've done that because you would think, right, after the, um, the court case and the trial and all that, right, you would think that then the only avenue, if they're still trying to set people up for it, would be to try and get them into the coroner's court put them in the box and they'd say, all right, here's some people that weren't charged but remain suspects in it and try and, because they're a party to the thing as far as the investigation goes, but if they're not going to include them in the fucking inquest, what the hell's going on there? David Waters is an ebullient, larger-than-life character. He's been on both sides of the law. But Peter Lawler is a different character altogether, quieter and more reserved. In his 30 years as a cop, he never had a black mark on his record, except for a drink driving charge early on. Yet the author alleged that Lawler would involve himself in the murder of a man that he didn't know, risking everything for just 1,500 bucks. 
In fact, for nothing, as the author maintained. I would like to point out that he never asked for payment. That was a gift from me. I haven't spoken to you for a couple of years. So are you still in the building game, building surveying? Yeah, I'm still in the, the business of building surveying. So you stopped thinking like a cop? Have you managed to disengage? <laughs> that was a profession uh, in another lifetime. <laughs> yeah, I try not to uh, think too much about that. Although... Part of my role as a building surveyor is uh, policing the uh, the Building Act. Doing it by the book. Doing it by the book. Yeah, that's good. As a policeman, do you think you always did it by the book? Uh, <laughs> For the most part, yes. I would say yes. There were times when one could say that uh, a little bit in the grey area, but uh, largely by the book. Yeah, I guess it depends on the reasons you're doing it. Isn't it? I think some of the best police I've known have, you know, known when to use the book and when to throw it out. And then there are some who never had a look at it. Well, uh, yes, uh, and uh, they seem to uh, progress through the ranks. But uh, look, I mean, if you were stuck by the book religiously, you'd probably get nothing done. Um, so there are times when you've got to make a, a decision on uh, what's the best course of action to take, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily follow, uh, you know, the rules and procedures of uh, the police force. Lawler suspects it was his work as a union delegate that set Vic Pohl's management against him. Yeah. Well, I think the two are related uh, because uh, they were happy to seize on. Uh, some information, some rather dubious information was given to them and uh, it suited them to uh, run with it and uh, discredit my uh, reputation. And ultimately it forced me to resign from the uh, police association as a delegate mm. and then later from the force itself. Well, it's like sort of catching smoke, isn't it? The allegation hasn't been made, you haven't been charged and yet you have to endure it through the media. I know I've got sympathy for you. I've done to other people, mind you. <laughs> Not in this case. Um, yeah, because ultimately you've never had any sign-off from the police that they're no longer pursuing you. In fact, uh, I think at one stage, one of the lead investigators um, contacted my solicitor uh, and said, look, uh, the, the matter's been referred to the DPP and they're of the view that... Um, there's uh, not enough evidence with which to charge and we won't be taking the matter any further unless uh, uh, new, fresh material becomes available. Uh, OK, so they've given you that much. Well, uh, when that became public, the response from the departmental hierarchy was that uh, it's an ongoing investigation and, and Peter remains a, a person of interest. In 2007, Victoria's Office of Police Integrity summoned Lawler and Waters to answer questions on the murder. OPR hearings were held in secret. They risked a jail term if they discussed their attendance with anyone but their lawyers. So, I have been interviewed, uh, I have been brought before the uh, OPI. Uh, they conducted a hearing in relation to the matter and uh, I gave my uh, response to the allegations under oath. Um, which is something I can't say that the person making those allegations was ever forced to do. It's just testimony to how they've done the whole thing, isn't it? It's all in secret again, and no one knows what's going on. How often does it come up, Dave, for you? Oh, constantly, every day. People you haven't run into for a long time, you bump into them and all say, oh, how's all that other shit going? People still don't even realise that people were acquitted of it. Yeah. And that, But everyone knows it was that 
put all the shit up. They know he's been to court, given evidence, and been proven to be a liar. Mm. But as I said, still people bring it up every day. Yeah. You know, they've got a lot of a big network of friends, and I don't see them all, you know, constantly, but every month or so I'll run into someone and it comes up. Yeah, because it's or, really serious. I mean, obviously it doesn't get much to, more. To be accused <laughs> of uh, being accessory to a murder. Yeah. Especially yeah. the front page of the Age. <laughs> On September 7, 2007, the Age newspaper ran a story that laid out the case against Waters and Lawler. The reporter, Nick McKenzie, obtained extraordinary detail of the investigation, including the super-secret appearances at the OPI. A senior Victorian detective is under investigation over his alleged ties to a contract killing carried out by a hitman at the heights of the gangland war. The hitman has told a secret police task force that Detective Sergeant Peter Lawler gave him the address of his target, male prostitute Shane Chartres Abbott, an investigation by The Age has found. Chartres Abbott was shot dead outside his reservoir home in June 2003. It's believed his killing was ordered by crime figures to avenge the rape of one of his clients. The hitman has also alleged that Detective Sergeant Lawler, in an attempt to confuse homicide officers, arrested him for unrelated crimes on the afternoon of the murder. The task force, codenamed Briars, is also investigating ex-detective David Waters, who the hitman claims was aware of the murder plan. The hitman claims he, Waters and Lawler met at a hotel a few weeks before Chartres Abbott was killed. Yeah, how did you feel when you read that that day? Oh, fucking horrified, mate, because I was, I went before the hearings and was told I couldn't even tell my family, my wife, where I'd been, what it was about. That was the day before. The next thing, a journalist from the age is ringing my solicitor and doctor and asking for what's happened and the solicitor's saying, I can't even talk about this. We're not allowed to talk about it. Next morning, here it is all over the paper that I've been in at Buddy Yum, the OPI and all this stuff, but I couldn't even tell my family. But they leaked it out, and here's my whole life story. Just fucking floored me. They knew damn well that it was going to get published, and he, even in the article it said about me being at the OPI. And he's a, a well-known bloke with a reputation throw him in there and try and hope something sticks. That's what they try yeah. to do. I tell you, there's one lesson in all this. Yeah. Be careful who you drink with. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, what am I doing here? What am I doing? <laughs> still, still not choosing them too carefully. The Age article placed immense pressure on police to get results. At the height of the Melbourne gangland killings between 2003 and 2005, police and the state government publicly dismissed such links and resisted calls for a royal commission to investigate them. Mr Overland defended Force Command's previous denial of links between the underworld and police. He said to confirm such links would have been irresponsible. We have to work on hard evidence, he said. Chip Legrand from The Australian again. From that point then, Peter Lawler and, and Dave Waters, they get named as suspects in this murder. Peter's still a police detective at that point. Dave Waters is, is retired from the force. But that brings enormous pressure on, on Victoria Police, on Senior Command, on the Bryan's investigators who until then are bound to basically operate under the radar. Because having named these, having put these people's names in print, then it's like, well, okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to charge them or not? And that really sort of changed what had gone on. In 2006-07, the author continued to make statements, but there was not much that could be regarded as hard evidence. Their prime suspect was still under surveillance and walking free. The challenge was to connect Mark Adrian Perry with the author, adding him to the chain of police. That link seemed to come in October 2006. 
Investigators trawling through Mark Perry's phone records found the name Wazza on a SIM card and a number that Warren Shea had used. The author told police that Warren Shea had asked him to kill Shane on behalf of an ex-boyfriend of Penny's in revenge for the attack. And Mark Perry was an ex-boyfriend and he was in contact with Shea around the time of the murder. And Shea in turn was in contact with the author before and after the murder. The dots were starting to join up, it seemed. A big part of the Crown case was the conversations taking place between the network of people, the informer, Warren Shea, Mark Perry's in the picture talking to Warren Shea. There's a lot of phone calls taking place and, mm. and the informer manages to lay a matrix over it saying, this is a conspiracy to kill Shane Chartres Abbott. Mm. It may not be. Clearly, there are issues with that. But that's not to say they weren't up to something. Mm. <laughs> the informer is a professional hitman at this stage. I don't think he's ringing up these characters who also have a history in crime. You know, he's not, he's not calling about Christmas greetings. <laughs> no, no. So you have some sympathy for the cops, I guess, who, who think there are villains up to villainy here. <laughs> in some ways, it, it probably wasn't all that beneficial to police. I mean, because I agree with you. I mean, it, it, that story could have only come sourced from uh, within the investigation, got an incredible level of, um, of detail in it. And it blew the cover right off Briars, alerting all the targets to exactly what the police were thinking. At that time, Mark Perry was lying low in an apartment in South Yarra. His relationship with June was over after she accused him of kidnapping their daughter during a dispute. He was with another Thai woman, Yanisa Whitford, who he had met at a massage parlour. An actor is narrating her statement to police. Toward the end of the year, Mark just disappeared. I didn't know what happened. He just disappeared one day. When Mark disappeared, he didn't take anything with him. His belongings were still there. It was only clothes, really. After a week, I moved to Canberra, but we still had the lease on the apartment. After maybe two or three months, Johnny called me and asked me to collect clothes because Mark isn't coming back and that Mark isn't going to be in Australia anymore and had gone overseas. But the amazing thing is he didn't run very far. I mean, when, when, he, when he disappeared and he was last seen at this, um, this cafe on the, on the Gold Coast where he was having breakfast with uh, Warren Shea. Shea told Perry that he'd been interrogated by police, but he'd refused to answer their questions. That was again, talk about the sort of the moments of ineptitude in the police investigation. That was when they had the salt or pepper shakers bugged, but they couldn't quite hear it to the point. So the salt and pepper shakers were bugged. I haven't heard that one before. And, and so you, it didn't work out. So you, you end up having a um, Steve Abraham. A Briars investigator. Sort of leaning over from an adjacent booth, trying to sort of hear what was being said over the top of this music. And he only got a few little snatches of uh, conversation, which was very conclusive anything but so that was the last time he was seen and, and they assumed that because he, he lived in Thailand previously and um, he had connections with a few Thai women including Penny they thought he'd go on the run somewhere in Thailand and so police ended up with um, or the Bryce Task Force ended up sending over uh, people who were permanently stationed in, um, in Thailand to put some of these women under surveillance. In the next episode of The Trials of the Vampire, investigators post a $1 million bounty on the head of Mark Perry as an international manhunt begins. We sat inside the pub and after saying hello, Mark whispered to me that I am the one who shot him. He was the one who did it. And we get to the bottom of the relationship between Shane and Penny and learn more about what really happened in room 307 of the Hotel Seville. 
The Trials of the Vampire is a Podcast One production. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Producer, writer and narrator is Adam Shand. Editing, mixing and original music score is by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nicole Gunn. Additional research by Alison Caldwell. Associate producer is Carly Humby.